0: Once again, as we have done for the last few years, largely we look at the book of Romans. Probably all of us have had the experience of someone close to us telling us that we have bad breath, we are embarrassed. And yet we are thankful to know the problem so that we can make the necessary corrections. We begin to wonder how long it has been this way. Who all knows? What was the cause? Maybe that salad dressing at lunch. Oh my, but at least we know. Over the course of time, we've come to realize that we cannot always trust our own olfactory nerves to pick up the scent of our own offensive exhalations. We could certainly use the help of a little sheet of analyzer paper which would wilt when the bad breath passes over it. Similarly, pride is like bad breath. We can easily discern it in others, but we are oblivious to it in ourselves. Pride deceives us, it tricks us, and we don't know that it is there without careful examination. How important is dealing with pride in the family of God's children? Well, in this section of Romans 12, verse 1 has urged us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Verse 2 has helped us to see that the only way we'll present the body as a living sacrifice is if our minds are transformed by Holy Spirit renewal. And then as we present the body, as we have our minds transformed, what is at the top of the list for the church people interacting with one another? Verse three, deal with proud thoughts. It's fairly important. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think of yourself With sound thinking. Now that may not sound like the smoothest sort of English, but it gives us a glimpse at this word for thinking that is used four times in our verse. So that Leon Morris says, with a complex play on words, Paul makes a powerful exhortation to humility. To himself, Every man is, in a sense, the most important person in the world, and it always needs much grace to see what other people are and to keep a sense of moral proportion. He, therefore, who covets a higher or another standpoint and sphere of activity in the community, the believing community, the church, and is not contented, with that which corresponds to the measure of faith bestowed on him, evinces a willful self-exaltation which is without measure and not of God. Yet another, arrogance and conceit are sadly quite common human failures which all too often have been carried over into the Christian church both in blatant and in covert Fashion. The problem of arrogance and conceit is a human failing that needs to be addressed in every Christian ethical agenda and renounced in all our contemporary thinking and action as believers in Jesus today. When we come to the diversity of gift among church members as laid out in Romans chapter 12, we need new measures of humility the change is that the apostle is now in view the differences that exist among believers differences which god in his sovereign providence and distribution of his grace has cause to exist god is sovereign Whatever gifts you have, whatever gifts you have, these differences are implied in the various expressions from verse 3, according as God has dealt to each a measure of faith. Verse 4, all the members have not the same office. Verse 6, having gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us. So now what is in mind is the diversity in respect of endowment, grace, function, office, faith. We find now the directions pertaining to sanctification in the church of Christ as God's will takes account of this diversity. But before we get to the particulars of whatever diversity exists among us, we are urged to think not more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but that we think sober thinking. Well, with that, let's come to the text itself. Let's come to the handout sheet, if you care to use it, and notice Roman numeral one, the parties. The parties concerned in the accurate self-assessment in the assembly. First of all, the author of this directive. Paul says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say, by or through the grace. Paul is not forgetful of the mercies of God that saved him. He just wrote about that in verse 1. However, in the following context, he is listing out the various gifts. Somebody's got an ability to be a prophet. Somebody else has got an ability to teach. Somebody else has got an ability to lead. Someone else, an ability to give. He's talking about spiritual gifts, and that seems to be what Paul means by the grace given to me. God has not only saved me, but he has given grace to me in the spiritual gifts that he has given to me, particularly as an apostle to the Gentiles. So here it is Paul's role as an apostle that is in view when he speaks of the grace that he has received. In Romans 1, he is self-consciously aware that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11 in verse 13, "I am an apostle to the Gentiles." So Paul is saying, "I'm speaking to you, not from some self-arrogating position, but rather from the place that God has given me to the church here in the first century." Paul is able to be humble at the same time that he is a leader. We get a picture of this in Ephesians 3 and verse 7. As Paul reflects on his gifts, I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. There's my gift. But now in verse 8, here's my sins. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul, as he often does, looking back to his unconverted days, is saying, I was one that was involved in persecuting the church. I assisted in the stoning of Stephen. I wanted to be sent out with a commission to these various cities so that believers would be imprisoned or put to death. So here are my gifts. I can engage them while I can still be humble, recognizing who and what I was before the grace of God came to me. That's the author And now, secondly, be the recipients of this directive. To everyone among you. To everyone among you. And he's going to come in later verses to speak of individually we are members of the one body in Christ. The one and the many. The one church. The many individuals within the church. The one body. And the fingers, the hands, the elbow, the arms, the nose, the eyes, the ears of that one body. To every believer within the church, I'm speaking to you on this matter of necessary humility. Remember, the Jews have been arrogant. And Paul has had to confront them and say, is God Only the God of the Jews? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And twice in Romans 11, Paul has had to come and address the Gentiles and say, now now don't be arrogant here against your Jewish brethren. And when we get to Romans chapter 15, we're going to hear about those who regard themselves as the strong, and this other category of the weak, and there's going to be an obvious danger that the strong are going to despise the weak, and the weak are just going to return the favor. Every believer in the church has the need to be transformed in that presenting of the body as a living sacrifice, And having the mind renewed and the first step in the renewal of the mind is having right thoughts. And not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And Paul directs his exhortation to all his hearers, thereby signaling that what he says immediately following is not to be dismissed or taken lightly, rather it is to be received as an apostolic denouncement of an all-too-common human failing which, if allowed to continue, would have very adverse consequences on the growth of the life of the church. If we don't deal with pride, it will significantly hurt us as a church the parties and now come with me in roman numeral 2 to the twofold duty the twofold duty of accurate self-assessment within the assembly we are not to be individuals it's not that i simply think of who and what i am as an individual christian before god But that assessment is to come within the context of the body. I speak to everyone among you in this group. First of all, A, there is a prohibition against over-inflation, not to think more highly. And why do I say over-inflation? Well, when we speak of someone being proud, we often could speak of them as being big-headed. If I were drawing a caricature here before you of a proud person, I might draw this great big head and then a tiny little torso tiny little hands, tiny little feet, D- doesn't need big hands, doesn't need big feet, because he doesn't do anything. He doesn't serve anyone. But there is this inflated head. It's as though someone has hooked him up to some hot air and pumped it in there, and this is what he or she thinks of himself. He has this huge notion of himself. That's the prohibition for overinflation. Now, notice with me the nature of this thinking that is prohibited. Four times, as we already saw, these forms of the word for thinking are used overthink, think, think, and sober judgment or sober thinking. The first usage is that of to overthink or to think above and beyond when it comes to ourselves, to hold a high opinion. The first object upon which the mind will think is its own possessor. Have your mind transformed and it starts with how the mind regards you, it, yourself, himself, herself. So Paul speaks of this thinking first of all. Each and every Christian must be minded rightly in relation to everyone else among the church. Then notice with me the proper regulation of this thinking. Thinking no more highly of himself or herself than he or she ought to think ought. This is a little word of necessity. It's the word that Jesus used when he began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem. He needed to go there to die. This is a word that is used in the list of qualifications. A bishop then must be and on the list goes. And here Whatever level we give to ourselves, it is necessary for me to think this way. Now, everybody says that. Even, even the guy with the inflated, well, it's necessary for me to think this. But what is new for us is to see that this is an evaluation that comes in the context of the assembly my assessment is shared by others among God's people. There are many valuable gifts within the assembly. This is where we see me fitting in. And here is a word directed against our natural arrogance. What's the first step? Going to present my body as a living sacrifice. Going to have my mind renewed. Well, my mind needs to think Humbly, And what's the danger? Well, the book of Proverbs tells us, 13.10, by insolence comes nothing but strife. And if we bring together a group of individuals whose remaining pride is left unchecked, then we are not going to be a happy bunch for very long. Because your native pride and my native pride and your native pride is all going to rise up. What do we have to do to cause problems in the church? Nothing. Just be your natural old remaining corruption of pride self. And do whatever comes along with you putting yourself first. And what Paul is emphasizing here is what he says elsewhere. Paul speaks of himself. I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see how he does not forget what he did. Here I am trying to build the church up now, but not many years ago, I was trying to kill that cancer of the church. And I remember that. And whatever I am, it is due to the grace of God. And even if he makes the statement of laboring more than the other apostles, he brings right along in there with it that it was God's grace that was promoting this in him. And Paul will say, not surprisingly, in the list of qualifications, not a novice, Lest, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation of the devil. You see, it is necessary for us as church members, as true believers, to view ourselves as pieces of the puzzle picture. Now if you, you take one and, and for this morning we're going to have a New England seaside town and the picture in my mind it's a little harbor there. It's fall. You've got the beautiful colors there uh, in, in the trees along the shore and you've got these various boats and some of them with their masts going up. And if we take you as one of the puzzle pieces what do you look like in and of yourself? Well the, a little bit of orange there, a little bit of blue and a little bit of white on this small little piece, and my, aren't you a fine-looking specimen of shape? What is it? Well, it ain't much. It is only when the little puzzle piece is fit in with the larger picture that you get what it is supposed to be and I think that helps to keep in our own minds what we are as an isolated individual, something that is a little bit odd. But here, a part of the larger picture, and when we're looking at the finished picture that we put together with the puzzle, it's then that we, we almost wish all the little lines of the individual pieces would fade into the background and we want our brains to look at it as one complete and one full piece. So here's a prohibition against inflated thinking. Don't think of yourself as that one little oddly shaped puzzle piece with a little orange, a little blue, and a little white on it is the master piece of the puzzle. You're a part of the whole. Secondly, B, the positive requirement of sound judgment, but to think with sober judgment. And if the ESV wanted to highlight the word think, then they would have rendered sober judgment as sober thinking. I'm not saying they should have. But for our purposes, it would help us to see it. Overthinking versus sound thinking. And this word of sound thinking is used at times to speak of thinking sanely. In Luke 8, 35, there was the man from whom the demons had departed. And there he was, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right hand. Mine, that's our word. He's sane again. Paul says, Second Corinthians five thirteen. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are a sound of a sound mind, it is for you. And this is why the Christian man Moffat gives us a colorful view of this directive let the man take a sane view of himself. A sane view. It's used in Titus 2 and verse 6 to speak of prudently, exhort the young man to be sober-minded. Peter's going to take it, and it's translated as, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. In contrast to the overestimation of ourselves to which we are so prone, Paul insists that we are to view ourselves in a sober manner, in accordance with a true and objective estimate, the product of the renewed mind. This informed and accurate assessment of ourselves, in turn, will enable us to live in unity with other believers, Paul's emphasis on the right way to think fits his larger emphasis on unity. And I believe we need to take a hint from Paul himself. When he's looking at his God-given gift, he does that and he embraces that. But he remembers who gave the gift. And at the same time, he looks back to what he had been a couple of decades ago, that natively he was one who hated Christians and was working to exterminate them. Now this positive requirement counters the danger of a false humility. Sometimes we may hear someone say, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. And there are times when a depressed individual says that, And they really believe that. But there are also times when someone says, I am nothing, I am worthless, they are fishing. And we are supposed to respond by saying, oh, no, 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 no. You're not worthless, you are this, you are the other. Sober and sane thinking neither exaggerates nor depreciates such gifts as God himself has bestowed. God made this appointment in his wisdom and his love to appreciate properly the portion you have received is to honor God, is to be of a sober and balanced mind in regard to your own person. There's the prohibition. Secondly, B, the positive requirement. And now, thirdly, our twofold duty applied. If we are going to interact everyone among you, the many members of the one body, you're all members of one another, then Christianity heightens our social abilities, a little one under two, under C. Christianity heightens our social abilities in making us find our place among our believing friends. I'm willing to look at myself in the midst of my believing equals in God's family. And Romans 12 counters a sinful selfishness that only wants to look at me. When I look at the little puzzle piece alone... I see something wonderful. If that's the only thing you're gonna look at, yeah. But be willing to look at yourself in the context of the people of God. Secondly, Christianity heightens our social abilities in making us fulfill our stewardship among others. I'm a part of the team. I have this particular sphere of responsibility. I got a shape like this and like this, and it fits right here on the picture in the puzzle. In and of itself, it's a bit odd. But when it's fit into its place, it's exactly shaped the way that I need to be. Christianity counters my temperamental self-consciousness and my troubling insecurities. If you're a child of God, then you belong. If you're a child of God, you have gifts. If you, have a chi- if you are a child of God and you have gifts, those gifts are to be employed for the common good. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 12 as well. I cannot ignore the problems that I cause by my pride. And I can't ignore the problems that are caused by my self-loathing. I just need to be over here in the corner and die. No. We have responsibilities. Thirdly, Christianity heightens our social abilities in making us develop our communication skills. I can't just talk or not talk as if I lived on a deserted island. I'm a part of the body. The body that receives impulses from other parts of the body and there's tremendous communication and interaction that takes place. I can't be a non-communicative Part of the one body. I'm not going to let, We're not going to answer the brain. Don't don't respond to that. We're just over here. In this sin-cursed world, problems are going to arise, and I may need to address Gladys's sin. In this sin-cursed world, problems are going to arise and Gladys or someone else may need to speak to me and I need to calmly listen and not shift the focus or shift the blame. Then I need to communicate sorrow and forgiveness and restoration. Problems will arise, and I will need to graciously interact. I hear what you're saying in this, but in part, I think we need to talk about this other. And all this social interaction is required of these various members of the body, and quite honestly, this is one argument, that An individual member of the church needs to be of a sufficient age that they can fulfill something of these requirements of communication and interaction. Now, if you're 47 years old and claiming you're not old enough yet to be a part of the church, that's something else, isn't it? There are these responsibilities. But at the end of the day, what a wonderful instrument is the church. Psalm 68 says, God sets the solitary in families. Church membership requires a level of social maturity. We are sinners saved and united to Christ and to one another. And in a very real sense, our spiritual health, our growth is going to depend on the rest of the body and the health of the rest of the body. The parties, Roman numeral one, the twofold duty, and now Roman numeral three, the basis The basis of accurate self-assessment within this assembly. Notice with me, first of all, A, the sovereign dispenser of the gift. The last phrase here in the ESV that God has assigned. As God has assigned. It is a dispensing that takes place. Luke 12 and verse 13 Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's our word. First Corinthians seven seventeen. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Some, when God saves them, are married and some are single. Some are circumcised and some are uncircumcised. Some are slaves and some are free men. According to, to as how God has distributed to each one. So there is this dispensing, there is this assigning. It's plainly saying that God has these gifts in his hand and he said, gift there, this gift here, this gift here, and this gift, he is the one assigning. It's more plain. God is the dispenser. As we hear from first Corinthians. 12, and verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he, the Spirit of God, wills. And it brings us to see our creatureliness. We are not God. God is God. And God deals with each one of us as those that are made and then redeemed and brought into the church and gifts that are given. I am but a piece of clay in the potter's hands. And I could ask myself the question, which I have. Why am I standing here this morning attempting to explain the word of God To a group of believers. Why am I not concerned about planting alfalfa seed on that lower bottom of 88 acres of field? Well, God has something to say about that. And God leads the sovereign dispensation. Then, secondly, the possessors the possessors of the gift. To each one, each according to the measure of faith that he has assigned, that he has distributed. To each one, to the everyone who is among you, there is a universality of giftedness. We have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. Verse 5 here in Romans 12. And individually members of one another. 1 Peter 4.10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And this is a theme that is picked up by our confession of faith 300 years ago and more where they said church members being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of duties, public and private, in an orderly way as to conduce their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. If I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a right, I have a claim, I am tied into the gifts that you possess. We have a communion in each other's gifts. Sovereign dispensing, the possessors. Now thirdly, see the terminology of the gift. And here we have to think a little bit. The terminology of the gift, the measure of faith. The language, the measure of faith, is going to parallel the sovereign apportionment that comes in other phrases here in this paragraph. Verse 4. But all the members do not have the same function. Verse 6. Having gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us. Verse 6 through 8. Different functions and gift, prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, acts of mercy. There is a diversity that is there. There is this sovereign apportionment. And when we hear the measure of faith, we're being led into this same kind of language that we find later in the paragraph. But here in verse 3, faith must mean not saving faith because God doesn't divide or apportion a measure of saving faith, but the faith that is exercised in the right use of the gift. If God is going to give the gift of prophecy then God is going to impart, in addition to saving faith, he's going to give to the prophet the faith that he needs in the exercising of his gift. And we can understand this if we begin to appreciate how central our faith is as we are using our gift. Let's come back to the prophet. There in the latter part of verse 6, if prophecy in proportion to our faith why is that highlighted well the new testament prophet if he's going to announce something from god he's going to need faith at that particular moment to believe that there is a god that god has spoken That this is the word that God has spoken, and if God has spoken, it's going to come true. So we can see how faith is very necessary for a prophet. And I would suggest that faith is necessary in the exercise of any and all of our gifts. More summarizes. Without faith, none of the gifts can be exercised. Almost like I'd read that before. If we believe with a full seriousness, seeing that God is the author of the gift, and God is the author of the faith that enables us to exercise our gift, then it's going to be a little harder for us to be big headed. We're going to see that God is the author. He's given me the help and the ability. And so humility proceeds from a genuine faith. My heavenly father gave me this particular gift and he gave me the ability to exercise this gift. Murray says, measure of faith must reflect on the different respects in which faith is to be exercised in view of the diversity of functions existing in the church of Christ. But why? Why does he call the gifts here in verse 3 as measure of faith? Paul is choosing to highlight that our spiritual gifts must be carried out in a spiritual way. We must have faith. It's not that you get this gift from God and if you have the gift of leading, you can lead, you can lead, you can lead, you can lead, and it's just automatic. No. It is a leading that is exercised by faith. Faith in God. Faith that he is leading. Faith that he has spoken to us. And one has said that this fits with the apostles' word elsewhere. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes we can emphasize, I can do all. We get a little too much on the first syllable. I can do all things. I can do all things... Through him who strengthens me. I have this gift and I have this enablement that comes from God. That enables me to have the faith as I ought to have. We must appreciate that spiritual gifts are indeed spiritual. Right? They are spiritual because of their spiritual origin. They come from the Holy Spirit. Because of their spiritual nature, they help us to minister to one another. They help us to cause the body to be spiritually growing. And because of their spiritual exercise, you don't get a gift and then push a button and you just automatically do it. No, it's got to be lived out and exercised in faith. Practical lessons. Roman numeral four. Practical lessons. Note well here the indispensability of the church for holy living in an unholy age. Our age is looking more and more like the unholy age of the first century. All the stuff that we've been hearing about the Roman bathhouse, about their immorality, about how Nero, who was on the throne at the time Romans was written, how he murdered his mother and his first two wives and his uh, brother-in-law and perhaps his stepbrother. It's incredible, the depth of immorality that they were living in in that period of time. But as as our nation goes down, notice the indispensability of the church. We're to, as individuals, offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. As individuals, we must have our minds transformed. But then he moves very quickly into the gifts and abilities that are going to help us as a group get to heaven. What is the framework for all these practical exhortations? Where are you going to find a New Testament prophet? Where are you going to find someone who's showing mercy? Where are you going to find the one who is leading? Where are you going to find the one who is giving? You see, all of those take place in the context of the local church, the Society of the Saints where there is this everyone among you. Now we may at times be tempted to despise the local church and say, I can be a saint isolated from the communion of the saints. But that's like saying, I can be a great elbow all on my own. Well, I beg to differ. You take the elbow out of the arm. What is it? What do you use it for? These people have got their quirks. Whatever you may think about the church, you're incomplete without it. You're an elbow. And you need to be connected. You are incapable of fulfilling your divinely designed role within the body when severed from that body. You need the church. The church is used by God to get us to heaven. You see how Bunyan, John Bunyan got this in Pilgrim's Progress, particularly part two. There's that group that's traveling together. Christiana, great heart, Mr. Standfast, Mr. Honest, Mr. Ready to Halt, Mr. Despondency, and his daughter, much afraid, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Valiant, Matthew and Mercy. And they all arrived, heaven's shore, together, and then one by one cross over the river of death. And who knowing the difficulties encountered in this human life, and our own vacillating weakness, who, wanting to get to heaven, would cut himself off from God's instrument to help get him to heaven? Would you be a holy man or a holy woman in an unholy age? Would you be offering your body as a living sacrifice? Would you want to see your mind to be transformed? then give due place to the local church and see that you are a vital part of a living organism called the body of Jesus Christ. Secondly, B. Note well the indispensability of humility for holy living in an unholy age. All right, Paul says, now we're going to Have our bodies presented. We're going to have the renewing of our minds. I want to talk to you about spiritual gifts. How you interact with one another. And where do you think that I ought to start? Paul asks us. And before we can figure it out. He tells us. I'm going to start with humility. Why start with humility? Well because we all carry the influence of our remaining sin that wants to see everything about me. And we can beat it down from time, but it's still there, isn't it? Our starting point is ourselves. Our starting point is what's in it for me? And here we remember Don't overthink yourself. Don't have this over-exalted way of thinking. But think sanely. And for a moment, it's appropriate to recognize that there is a certain irrationality and pride. Think of poor Pharaoh. Poor Pharaoh, I don't really mean that. Poor Pharaoh only in his ultimate end. Pharaoh sees all these miracles worked by the hand of God. Pharaoh sees the Red Sea parted and the Israelites going across on dry ground and his response is, let's go get them and we're going to destroy them and I'm going to beat them and their God. Is that really that rational? Pride is irrational. If you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I urge you to see that you need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and if you see yourself as a sinner before the absolutely perfect God, that's going to take you a long way. And you're going to delight to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to delight to give your life to him because he is so loving and gracious and kind that he was willing to come from heaven and humble himself in the first step in joining true humanity to himself and then humbling himself in the next step in being that perfect sacrifice on a Roman cross. And when you see the humility exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a drawing power that says, sinner, it's safe. You you may have lots of questions, but it's safe and it's good to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally this morning, the indispensability of service for holy living in an unholy age. Here we've got the Society of Saints that is compared to a body ministering to itself in love. All the puzzle pieces fit together and there's our beautiful New England shore town when it's all together. And if I am one of Christ, then the Holy Spirit has endowed me with a gift. And if I am a believer with a gift, then I need to be involved in service. I need to use that gift for the common good of the people of God. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Gifts are given to serve all of God's children in the local church family, And without this sense of responsibility to serve one another, then we will be tempted to view ourselves in isolation. And then we can start saying, well, I've got this gift, this gift, and this gift, and there there are like so many military medallions that you can hang on your chest. That's about you. But spiritual gifts are given for the profit of all. And in the end, the local church will fail to be the sanctifying and persevering influence and preserving influence that the local church needs to be by God's design. And may God help us To be holy men and holy women in an unholy age. Let's pray. Father, use your word, apply it to our hearts in the exact particular that only. You know, but grant our God that we would have a renewed focus on the importance of the church, a renewed fear of how our remaining corruption of pride can spill out, be offensive like bad breath, and we may even be oblivious to it. Grant that any here this morning who are not yet experiencing the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ, lead them, draw them to your wonderful self. And we pray that you would wonderfully transform us all from being those who are proud and focused on ourselves to those who are busy in self-denying service to the common good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.